everyone. Welcome to the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. I am super excited to be joined today by Candace Alaska, who's a mental health advocate from Trinidad and Tobago, who uses an anti-oppression lens to her advocacy. And I know I've been following you online for a long time. So just, uh, yeah, super, super stoked to have you here. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? And I know that we're going to record two episodes, but this one was going to be about um, your advocacy in the global south. So just a little bit about your story would be great. Sure. Um, I am a New Jones mental health advocate. Um, I... I'm particularly interested in um, mental health approaches or approaches to mental health advocacy that take uh, an intersectional approach and that understand um, how oppression plays into our mental and emotional struggles. I live in the global south, which constitutes a huge part of my identity. I identify as neurodivergent and um, I'm also, I mean, this is not relevant, <laughs> but these are parts of a big, big parts of my, my world. I'm also a writer and photographer, um, in case it comes up. <laughs> and uh, um, I also uh, center in my advocacy work at Disability Justice Lens, which is so important to me. That's amazing. Yeah, I I am so excited to talk more about that. So in terms of your experience with borderline personality disorder, what uh, what's your story there? Yeah, long story. Um, did you know that I I realized recently that it's been about six years since I, I got this diagnosis. Six years, wow. Uh, I, yeah, I know, time flies. <laughs> yeah, right. It was about, uh, it was more than six years when I realized that this, you know, this diagnosis um, seemed very much like it was just describing me. Like it, it seemed like um, somebody had just written down, you know, my essential personality and then they called it a, a mental illness and but it took a few years after that to actually take it seriously and go get a formal diagnosis because I think at that point in time like you know there's still very little um there's so there are so few resources in our, in our country for when it comes to mental health and getting a diagnosis is, is not always accessible to everyone so it took a few years before I got back to that place. And, and also, I think there's a big, big part of that, I think, is how we see people who have experiences that fall outside of the norm. People who uh, see and experience things differently is how I describe that. Um, and so there's still this, this huge sense that for somebody to have, for somebody's mind or emotions or body to function differently like that's a huge thing right and that wouldn't happen to you because you're normal and that really happens to like certain people so that that was definitely like something that came up those were like common responses from people in my life when I brought up the, the idea that I could potentially have this diagnosis this uh, this thing I, I I have a very complex relationship to borderline personality disorder diagnosis in the first place but I think it was very telling of how we see people who experience things that fall outside of the norm that people will just like no there's no way you could possibly have that right you're normal so it did take a few years again and I eventually realized uh this resonates with me quite a lot and Mm. I got a formal diagnosis done 
Okay. Okay. So is borderline personality disorder well known in Trinidad and Tobago? Like, did you, had you heard of it before? Did you know other people who were diagnosed? No, I I had never heard of this thing. And let me tell you, like, it sounds, it sounds very scary. It sounds like a really scary sounding condition to have. So when you're hearing about it for the first time and then telling people about the possibility of having it, for the like and this is the first time that they're hearing it it sounds like they're telling them that you, ha- you have some kind of life sentence or, anyway uh, some kind of death sentence but no the, it is not commonly known I think like so there are in terms of uh mental health issues like after diagnosis that are most common here it would be things like depression anxiety schizophrenia those are more common but um uh, diagnosis like BPD aren't quite as well known although they are given out quite a lot I know quite a few people in this country who have this diagnosis it's still not like it's still not something that is recognized um, by by most people yeah I mean I I feel like it's even been a long time coming that it's like more recognized in Canada right so that's not super surprising that it's not super well known um and then did you did you know about what BPD was before you were diagnosed I mean you said that it was what two years before you actually sought out the diagnosis that you kind of like thought about BPD maybe fitting but like did you know like did you have internal stigma about what the disorder was before you were diagnosed um that's a really good question and no, I had absolutely no idea what this this thing was. I my the extent of my knowledge of mental health issues, mental health differences, conditions, psychiatric diagnoses did not extend very far at this point in time. I think I like I had always known that I was different and I for a long time thought I I was bipolar because that resonated the most and it was what I knew, but I did not know about BPD. It, it did just resonate so much when I read about it. And I think if I had prior knowledge of like um maybe if I had had prior knowledge I'd been exposed to it before, it I potentially would have gotten diagnosed uh, sooner. Yeah, so how old were you when you were diagnosed? Oh no, okay, um massive. <laughs> I think I was twenty six. Yeah. Twenty six? Yeah. Which oh, is okay. to me is quite late. Well, for me, in the sense that I I feel like I could have gotten answers a lot sooner if like mental health resources were much more accessible. Yeah, totally. I mean I definitely don't think that it's early like I would say there's a there's a big group of people that are diagnosed around that age but I think generally a lot of us are diagnosed at 18 19 20 kind of thing so it's slightly late for sure yeah and so what does advocacy look like for you um in in your world um mental health advocacy or specifically uh, where I live in the global south or in general yeah in the global south I don't know anything about the global south and like how how mental health is um looked upon or supported yeah. there so like really interested in that yeah I I love having these conversations because the global south is often neglected in conversations like these um because a lot of 
these movements. The movements are when it, around mental health, neurodivergence, the neurodiversity movement, uh, all of these kind of similar movements or, or any kind of, I think, advocacy at all tends to be more located in the global north because it's much more resourced. Uh, and I'd say this for any any movement. Like, that's, that's again, that's the mainstream mental health movements, the malliberation movements, all of these kinds of things. There's so little of this taking place. I know I can't speak for the entire global south. This is a vast area, but from my uh, my experiences and what I've seen, there's so little of these movements taking place and not for lack of will, not for lack of wants, but for lack of resources. I'd say it's a big factor. It's just that these movements are so under-resourced here. I, I will also say that like what's so significant about advocacy when it comes to mental health issues or awareness, I'd say, or when it comes to mental health issues in the global south, is that it still remains through a very medicalized lens, which is deeply frustrating to me. And what that does is it individualizes our suffering and it locates the root causes within the individual. And it does not look to how the difficulties of living in these these places, how, how social and political and economic factors are showing up in individuals as what we call mental illness. And that's very, very frustrating for me because it, it does a few things. Like it allows us, of course, to ignore the impact of the reality of the, the society that we're living in it allows us to bypass the impact that these realities are having on people. And then it also means that the ways that we treat uh, with these, uh, these, these forms of suffering, this distress is also individualized and to a degree ineffective, I'd say. We are not, we're often not addressing root causes. And so much of what we call mental illness in areas in the global south, um, specifically in Trinidad and Tobago, is people reacting understandably to poverty mm -hmm. and crime and all of these things. And so for me, advocacy, like, we kind of, there are multiple approaches we've had to take. So for one is, is awareness, getting people to be aware that these things exist and what they mean. What what does it mean to, you know, what is psychosis? So what does it mean to see and hear voices that other people don't and understanding these experiences, but then also trying to locate them outside of just the individual, because even experiences like um, non-consensus reality can, you know, they're strong links to trauma, right? Um, and so we really need to be addressing causes. And I mean, until we do, we're not really going to get anywhere, right? So. Totally. And like, not only the root causes piece, but also, when looking through a medical lens exclusively, I find we often ignore or don't see the protective pieces of what we're doing, right? So like it makes a lot of what borderline is, is positive, right? Like we feel extra and we're super empathetic and we're super passionate and like all of these things that to me are really positive things about us and like make us awesome, unique individuals. But looking at it at a medical lens, it's always deficit-based. 
which is taking away our ability to see the awesomeness of who we are and what this can be like. And the fact that the the bits that are not super positive, they are survival. Yeah, oh my gosh, completely, completely agree with you. Um, I I see that probably in terms of like, not even just BPD, but so many different, we can extend that to so many different uh, things that we refer to as mental illness. And and again, it's like, I completely, I, how, how should I say? I think it's completely valid to self-identify however you'd like. So if mental illness is a team that um, resonates for people, then that's great. But I'm just talking about the medical model here of mental illness in the sense that everything is, uh, all of these differences mean that you're broken, right? You use all of, the, all of our differences to assign that there's something wrong. And I do like looking at it from a strengths-based model instead of the deficit model, model as you brought up. And with BPD, when we are doing that is understanding that all of these things, even the ones, like you said, like, they're not so great. Uh, they've been, you know, heavily, heavily judged and shamed. They are survival mechanisms, like survival responses. And they make quite a lot of sense, given the context of the experiences that a lot of people with this diagnosis have been through. And I think, like, I just love seeing it through that, that lens instead, because so much more human and compassionate and I um you know again with regards specifically to financial I think we still see things through the deficit model and there's there's we have adopted largely Western medicines we of viewing ourselves and our experiences and I think a lot of us are forgotten what it was like to see ourselves through the lens of like uh, our our ancestral cultures, our backgrounds. I in, in so many indigenous cultures we do not see or so many indigenous cultures they do not see things like hearing voices as a sign necessarily that something's wrong with the individual. There this there was sometimes spiritual meanings being made of uh, of things like hearing voices and experiencing the world of experiencing things that other people do and so now all of the meaning that we make of things like like experiences like these or of, of minds and bodies that work differently uh it's just, just that there's something wrong with you right and, and it's very i think it, it's very disheartening to see that in a, in a place where we have such you know rich cultures and it feels not just like we are pathologizing ourselves but it feels like a form of cultural imperialism uh, or, or western imperialism i'd say that we still that we are without necessarily recognizing it viewing ourselves to the lens of um of western medicine without uh, a conscious recognition of, of the fact that that's what we're doing and if this resonates with people then that's completely fine but there have been so many other ways of um, viewing all of these different things different experiences that have existed long before uh, psychiatry uh, as we know it came came about uh, yeah uh, and so yeah 
This is so interesting to me because in Canada, I come from a settler background of um, mixed European ancestry, but I work, I've worked for five years with um, our Indigenous population in healthcare. And so obviously I hold an interesting um, space there where I have to really recognize my own biases, my own privilege, my own like Western lens that is impacting my day-to-day life and decisions and that kind of thing. But in Canada, like the vast majority, vast, vast, vast majority of healthcare providers are not Indigenous, right? Um, And so it is very much that colonial view of everything, like all systems, not just healthcare, but like education, um, corrections, uh, you name it. It's It's got a colonial view kind of at the base of it. So in Trinidad and Tobago, is are the majority of the healthcare providers Indigenous to that area? Well, the majority of the healthcare providers here, I'd say, are well, they're, they're reflective of the local population. Um, our population is primarily, I'd say, are made up of people of Indian and African descent, although I don't mean to invisibilize people from other ethnic backgrounds, but that is a large, um, the, those populations make up quite a large proportion of, of our nation. And, you know, it's deeply frustrating because it is not primarily white practitioners that we're working with, right? It's people who share similar backgrounds to us. But then we show up into these spaces, they show up into therapy, and it's the same sort of colonial ways of viewing differences and distress that we're met with. And and again, like, I want to validate people's... uh, I want to validate any of these... The way that these, these diagnoses or these ways of understanding our experiences that may resonate with people, but also want to acknowledge that I think we are so stuck in these rigid boundaries and these rigid ways of seeing things and we don't honor our our lineages necessarily we don't honor our ancestry and we don't I think we don't know that it's valid to bring our beliefs our cultural beliefs into these spaces and and so part of that is also how we treat with these these experiences it's not just about how we conceptualize them, but also how we treat with them. And again, I see like it's it's pretty much the same as, you know, in the US and in Canada, medication and, you know, uh, the same therapeutic uh, modalities and that sort of thing, which again, is wonderful. And I think those things can be absolutely helpful. But I also am afraid of how we run the risk of not really fully like we're not really reaching people because a lot of these modalities were designed for an audience that isn't us necessarily and I think it shows a lack of faith in our own forms of healing like we have forms of healing that predate western medicine as we know it and a lot of which has also been appropriated by western medicine right and I think there's just this Again, this this sort of internalized uh, inferiority, sense of inferiority about our own practices, our own healing practices and traditions and that sort of thing. And so, like, 
Um, one, one, like one simple example of this is that a community care, a community model, uh, historically in some of our cultures was so much more normal for dealing with issues. But, you know, the West, <laughs> uh, Western culture tends to individualize uh, healing oh my gosh, it tends to over-individualize healing. And, and so we see that in the idea that when you're dealing with distress, when you're dealing with mental health issues and that sort of thing, it, it takes place one-on-one, right? So the individual in distress and the person, the, the therapist or psychiatrist or what have you. But, you know, historically, in you know, a lot of our, our cultures, it was dealt with in community, right? We, we, we saw these things as community uh, issues or... or I mean, yeah, so so that's just one example, but they're, they're just endless examples. And I think, like, spirituality is another example as well, a good, a good example. Like, we are deeply, or well, many people in this country, I'd say, are deeply spiritual people. But then uh, you may be taught that that's not how to deal or to, to approach these issues. Uh, Western medicine is not, like, Western medicine, by and large, does not take into account the impact of these these issues, these experiences on our spirit, uh, they don't necessarily take into account how like there's there's just huge disparity in in how a lot of these issues are conceptualized in Western cultures. We, and, and for a lot of us, we for example, we talk about the spirit. Uh, we talk about energy, like this is something language and, and, and ways of conceiving of our experiences that resonate more with a lot of us. So, for example, we might, you know, say that something feeling off or <laughs> somebody, you know, somebody uh, like we might talk about bad energy <laughs> and things like that. Like there, there's other ways of conceiving of, of what's going on with us. And uh, um, a lot of our practices, a lot of, you know, these ancestral practices may revolve around energy, right? But in, in Western medicine, that's not necessarily how these, these uh, experiences are conceived of. Conceived as a, sorry, I'm stumbling over this bit. Conceived of. And I think this is something in particular, of course, you can see with the BPD label. For me, I think we can, like, so much of the BPD label can be seen as spiritual distress, but this is not how it's conceptualized. And, yeah, I think if we were allowed to trust ourselves, allowed to trust our own cultures, we would have very different approaches to mental health differences and, and suffering and distress in our country. And so I, I do feel very frustrated. And when we, when we do have these experiences, we seem to lose so much trust in ourselves and we tend to Western medicine largely uh, and, and trust their expertise. Yeah, I I see that so much up here as well. And I wonder, in terms of stigma in the healthcare system, like obviously the healthcare system is not well set up to look at things from um, either that spiritual lens and or that collectivist lens. But did you experience great stigma within the healthcare system when you were accessing um, diagnostics or treatment? Yeah, um, there was, I mean, there was, there were like incendiary beliefs, like right from the start, literally. The, I remember how my process of seeking diagnosis went. I, I went to a psychiatrist and this is like a very prominent psychiatrist in the, in the country, like probably the most well-known. And anyway, when I went, to 
uh, seek a formal diagnosis. And I said, hey, I think I may have this thing. And they were like, oh, well, people with BPD don't want to get better. So kind of like, you know, what's the point in, in trying to help you? And I was just sitting there like, but I'm here. I'm here. So clearly I do want to get better, right? So yeah, it was just, it was literally from the very start of this. I don't think they, they saw me as a person. They just saw me as a diagnosis from that point on. Yeah, for sure. And then what what type what type of treatment, um, if any, have you been able to access? I I have not found, and I know this surprises people sometimes, but I have not found any source of help that was through uh, the mental health system at all. Like in the sense that none of that was part of my recovery journey. Like therapy was not part of my recovery medication. Uh, none of it was part of it. Like I tried did not resonate, did not take, did not rake. <laughs> so none of it. Yeah. Interesting. None, none. Also, like in terms of DBT, uh, there, there isn't, like there are no DBT programs, I believe, that are available here. Like you can work with someone like in terms of skills, but there's no like actual programs. And not that I, you know, not that DBT should be like the, the way. The like, one thing, yeah. Yeah, but but that doesn't exist yet. And, and and I don't mean to say that there aren't helpful resources. Uh, I want to, like, just emphasize that. Like, I know of, I definitely know of a lot of people who have found so much healing uh, through their therapists locally. So they've been lucky, but I just was not. <laughs> and so then how's your mental health now, generally? I know it fluctuates, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. No, I, you know, you asked me previously what I thought was the most interesting part of my story and I was thinking about you know when I was thinking about uh, our discussion today I was actually thinking you know I think the most interesting part of my story to me is my recovery to be honest um I I am definitely in a much 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 different much better place a very, very different place from where I was a few years ago, and especially six years ago when I first got this diagnosis. I I I don't know, I don't recognize that person anymore, which is I don't know, a good thing, a bad thing. But I can't I I remember like on a cognitive level like what she went through, but I cannot relate. So yeah, I, I feel I feel very out of that not in the same place but at the same time like I do live under all of these systems of oppression so it's not great like my mental health you know it's still uh, a normal reaction to to all of the like to the reality of the the society that I live in so yeah oh for sure yeah I mean and mental health arguably is never perfect right like I, I it's not like recovery looks like yeah I'm like 100% good like there's no problem at all like that's not the issue it's more just from when you were at your worst have you been able to without that access to things like DBT get a little bit better if or a lot better question really around how you were able to get from like you know, six years ago, you were in a pretty bad place to now without access to treatment. Like, what did you do in terms of self-help or what did that look like? Yeah, I, I, so uh, it sounds weird. It's going to sound really weird. Like I, the way that I accessed recovery, I think was very, 
unusual uh i access i think i access so much of my recovery through doing social justice work which i know again sounds odd like who recovers from uh issues like these through doing social justice work in a to a very large extent like to a very large extent that is what i credit the progress i've made uh too so for me that i mean for one it gave me a sense of purpose right and it also gave me a sense of community and things like that but more importantly i think it changed the ways that i saw myself uh it changed a lot of my perspectives and you know for example there's there there are identity issues that people would be tend to struggle with or there there's a sense of not belonging anywhere sense of low self-worth and working uh in these justice-oriented movements, it was like doing this kind of work and learning more about uh, these different issues actually helped with, with those things. Like strangely enough, like the idea of yeah, okay, maybe I did not belong to the people who harmed me originally, right? Like maybe you, yeah, there are lots of people who have. Uh, I didn't belong with lots of people who have wanted to belong with, uh, and I just don't belong right but then also like doing this work there's this I, I I guess it changed the ways that I view the land and the the rest of the natural world uh I think it like the under like for example under capitalism we are taught to commodify our land right we are taught that the living world uh is essentially a commodity and I think that this disconnects us from it so very much a lot of us are so dissociated from it but like changing the way that I saw the rest of the natural world was such a big catalyst for me like with regards to healing wounds or not belonging because I I think I, I started learning that I will always belong just by literally just by existing I belong right and again this is th- th- these are ways of uh seeing the world that a lot of indigenous cultures uh have historically espoused and and so, yeah, retaining to, like, you know, historical and ancestral ways of seeing uh, the world. To me, all of those things are justice and liberation work, uh, because uh, to a large extent, those are, the, those are the ways of being that we are trying to retain to. And, yeah, like, just that, like, tra- like health of the wounds are not belonging. Like, okay, maybe I don't belong, in, you know, to, to, like, certain groups in society, but I belong here in this world. Literally, I do not have to prove uh, my belonging in the ways that I've been taught by these systems. And I think why, like, at the time, like, it did not make any sense at all to me that I could access, like, a sense of healing through this work, this type of work, whereas people are always, like, recommended things like DBT and stuff, right? But then I, I guess I started, like, over time and made a lot more sense because, you know, these systems of oppression essentially are manifesting themselves in interpersonal abuse and, and interpersonal forms of harm and relational, uh, these relational harms that people with BPD often um, experience that leads to this diagnosis, right? And so we can see abuse instead of, like, seeing it as something entirely separate from oppression, we can see it as, as sort of, like... Um, the result of oppression or like a, a small uh, uh, microcosm or a small scale version of it essentially and so yeah a lot of these beliefs that we we learn from uh, experiencing relational harm like abuse are also beliefs that are instilled in us from these various systems and being able to unlearn it wherever I unlearned it I think just helps so much so those, I, I think doing justice and, and, and liberation type work was so integral to my 
my healing and my recovery, which again, I know sounds probably very, very strange. Um, but that was no, I, that makes sense to me. I mean, I, I think that's like, it's slightly different, but similar. I think a lot of us, when we are able to learn more about BPD from a non-stigmatizing source, it, it helps us so much because of that. Like we already struggle with self-hatred and we don't need to have it added on by like the perception of the world around us telling us that we're terrible people. So like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense that if you can kind of pull apart your diagnosis and your behaviors and emotions and all these things from the context in which you were born and have to live, that makes sense that you would feel better. Yeah. And, and having passion and drive and all these things and like something to really get excited about, that's, I think, a huge piece of healing anyway. Yes, absolutely. And I think just, you know, simple human things like that, we need, like, can be so incredibly healing. Mm-hmm. It, it really is not all about just the modalities and things like that. Like, the human beings need purpose, right? Especially when we're living in a world that is designed in so many ways to deprive us of a sense of purpose and meaning. So I think just that alone can be so healing. Just like, you know, as you said. Yeah. Totally. Well, this seems like a really great place to end this episode because I know we're going to record a second episode about capitalism and oppression. And I think it kind of fits really nicely in here. So thank you so much, Candice, for coming on the podcast and talking about this. And um, we'll see you next week for our next episode. Thank you. This is this has been great. Thank you for giving us space to these issues of mental health advocacy and and struggles in the global south in particular and for giving me a space to speak about my experiences with BPD. Of course, anytime. It's actually funny. We have like a big amount of listeners in Trinidad and Tobago. Like it's- Oh my gosh. Yeah, we've been like, I think like the number two podcast or something like that. Like it's absolutely crazy. (laughs) I'm going to be famous is what this means. (laughs) Yeah, I I should find the actual (laughs) stats, but we, yeah, we like, we're like really high up on the charts there, which was funny. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.